0: Hey, y'all. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm an intern on staff at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, And it is my distinct pleasure to get to uh, introduce our speaker for this week. He probably doesn't need much of an introduction. You probably know him. But uh, his name is Les Newsom, And uh, to give you a little background on Les, Les grew up in Memphis. Uh, He did his undergraduate work at the University of Memphis. And then he has a Master's of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. After seminary, he moved back to Memphis to start the RUF there, uh, and that's actually where he met his wife, Ginger, and they have uh, three kids, uh, Anna Grace, Caroline, and Luke, and uh, after five years, God called Les to Ole Miss to be the campus minister where he served for 12 years, and now Les is an area coordinator for RUF uh, over the Mid-South, over Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas, is that right? Somewhere else, somewhere there. I actually met Les my freshman year uh, at Ole Miss and got uh, weirdly obsessed from him with him kind of from the start. Um, I, like When I say Les is my idol, like I don't mean that I look up to him, like I mean like he's a heart idol. Like it is, a, we're having a problem. Like we're talking like Tim Keller idols, like it's a little bit weird. I, I came home with these glasses and when someone was like, nice Les glasses, and I was like, oh, that is bad, that is true. That joke will make more sense in a minute. Um, Les met me, I guess, <laughs> my freshman year when I really didn't have much direction. I was an English major headed towards homelessness, uh, I guess is where, because I was an English major. um, And he was like, hey, how would you like to have a job? And so I thought, hey, that sounds good. And so he started pointing me towards RUF. And the reason that I stuck with, the reason ultimately that I decided to do RUF is because Les does RUF. This man has had a lot of other offers and a lot of ways that in the world's view, where he could have worked his way further up the ladder. And he decided to stick with RUF, and that a man of his talent would stay with RUF resonated with me. And that's why I do it, and that's why I'm here. I'm an intern. That doesn't mean much of anything. But I really like it. really like it anyway. And I think I'm excited for you all to get to hear from Les, because he is um, uniquely gifted at what he does. There are very few people can do the things uh, that he does here. And so I'm excited to welcome my friend Les Newsom. Y'all give him a warm welcome.
1: Great to be here. Everybody says that. A Normal thing that a speaker would say when he comes up front. Got to be obligatory. Uh, I will say this: if you brought, well, actually, if you brought your Bibles, open up to um, uh, Revelation chapter one. The dramatic music comes up behind us for that announcement. Um, You know, it was funny when I was. um, It's it's nineteen years ago. Uh, when I sat right back in this corner over here on the right, um, when I came to my very first RUF summer conference, uh, Brian Chappell was the speaker that week. He spoke on Daniel. I still remember what he talked about. Um, he now actually is the president of our denominational seminary, Covenant Seminary, which, which is nice to have that to look forward to, because apparently that's the next step. Wow. That was hard. That was tough. That was a cold one right there. I'll just keep looking to Will. Apparently, I have a relationship with that even I didn't know existed. Um, oh, don't start with that. It goes a long way back. Um, no, but it's a pleasure to be here. UF Summer Conference has been important to me, uh, and I hope it is to you. And uh, I, there are some things this week that I'm going to ask of you, uh, because I'm not going to treat you like children. I'm not going to treat you as if you can't understand things, and we're diving into something that um, is challenging. Uh, But I promise you, if you'll just stick with me through the week, uh, there might be something here that could be um, really helpful. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, let's give our attention to the uh, reading of God's Word to us tonight. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word to us this week. Once upon a time, there was a man who came home after a long day of work and was met, as men often are, by his wife at the door. Your six-year-old son, funny how it always becomes your son in times like this, your six-year-old son is upstairs and he's crying. So like any good dad, he races up the stairs to see what was the matter. And as he walks into his son's room, he sees the familiar settings of the room. He sees the uh, Legos, the army men, the soccer balls, yesterday's T-ball jersey thrown over to the side. And there his son is curled up in the middle of the bed, softly crying. So being a good father, he curls up sort of next to his son. He says, Hey, buddy, what's going on? You seem like you're a little bit sad. Daddy, I just don't think I want to go back to school anymore. Really? Why not? He said, Well, I, I just don't like it. Because Michael is mean to me there, and the teacher told me today that it's my fault. And, and Ethan always breaks into the line at, at the tetherball games. And the truth is, today, Mark told me that he doesn't want to be my best friend anymore. Daddy, I just don't like it, and I don't want to go back. How do you say that? Where do you find yourself as a father when you suddenly have to keep your six-year-old son in the game of life? But rather than sort of resulting to a lecture, the father looks at him and says, Son, I wonder if you can let me tell you a story. Okay, he sniffs. See, son, once upon a time there was a brave knight who lived in a happy kingdom. But like any knight, the king and the queen had to send him outside of the castle so they could learn the ways of the world, fight off all of the bad guys, and protect the reputation of the kingdom. The knight was brave, but that didn't keep him every now and then from being a little bit, of, a bit afraid. On one occasion outside, he encountered a, a large, mean, terrible ogre named Michael who kept blocking his pathway home. On another occasion, he had to fight a, a green, slimy dragon named Ethan, who kept taking away his gold that he earned on his trip. But The hardest part of the brave knight's life is that every time it seemed that he found himself into trouble's way, his fellow knights, especially one by the name of Mark, abandoned him and left him feeling alone. Now, with all this, you'd think that the knight would give up. But one day, when he returns to the castle after an especially hard day in the kingdom, the king and queen invite the knight into the great hall for an evening of feasting. And after they had all eaten to their their fullest, the king walked over to the knight's seat, and he pulled up a chair next to him. And drawing up close to the knight, he placed both of his hands on his shoulders. And he said to him, we don't say it often enough. But we would all be sad and broken people if it weren't for you. There's not a day that goes by where the queen and I do not say to ourselves how proud we are of you. And that if he can persevere for just a few more missions, just a few more adventures on the outside of the kingdom, there awaits for that brave night a vacation in Disney World. The son had long since stopped crying. And he looked up at his dad and said, Disney World? The father said, yes, son. Now let's go down and have dinner. Look, I hope that you don't need to be a parent to see the wisdom of how that father navigated that situation with his son. And you may not recognize it until you see the other options that were available to him. I mean, he had the option to look at his son and say, come on, son, look. It's time to tough it up. Be a man. He could have looked at his son and said, let's go through sort of a a detailed explanation of why it is that your friends are like that, the psychological problems they gain from their home that they grew up in. No, instead what he did was he looked at his son and he gave him three things. Think about this. He appealed to his son's imagination about a glorious future that awaited him, and told him that he was not alone in his journey. That was his method of dealing with his son. And I want to appeal to you this week that that is the exact same wisdom that Jesus employs in the book of Revelation. Now, I recognize that as soon as I even mentioned the book of Revelation, many of your defenses came up. Some of you are thinking to yourself, I will never forgive my girlfriend for talking me into this trip it's revelation. It's going to be weird like that. He's going to talk about, you know, how the Middle East is going on and that, you know, it's probably going to happen next week or something. Jesus is returning. Better get ready. Is that going to be it? And unfortunately, I almost wouldn't blame you for thinking that because your generation, just even in the last 20 years, has been inundated with a, a particular understanding of how to make sense of this book um, that I disagree with, that I want to take a different look at so that maybe, just maybe, we might unpack something here that you didn't know was there. We did this series at uh, RUF in, uh, at Old Miss a number of years ago and had a young man at the end of the series come, come to me at the end and say, you know, Les, what's so funny is I felt like to some degree, you may relate to him, I could understand what, you know, Matthew through Jude kind of meant. I, I can generally figure my way through that stuff but you get to the book of Revelation and it's like all bets are off. Who has any idea what that ridiculous thing means? It seems always at a distance from us. But look, I want to pitch to you tonight as a way of introduction that the book of Revelation comes to us in the same manner that the Father did to that Son through three things. The book of Revelation is an appeal to your imagination that there is a glorious future awaiting you, and that you are not alone in your journey. Every uh, year at Summer Conference, we rotate through what we call in RUF, our principles. This year, we're coming to the doctrine of glorification. And it's actually okay if you have no idea what that word means. But I simply want to go through this book with you and take sort of a helicopter's view of it. To try to introduce you to what I think is an extended treatment on that theme around these three first points. Let's look at the first one. I think that John is saying to is appealing to people on the basis of their imagination. Look, if you've read anything in the book of Revelation, you've looked at it and said, This is weird. Why the fantastic images? Why the strange uh, visions that John sees? Why would God talk this way? Just come out and say it. Well, why was it powerful for the father to look at his son and to recast, as it were, the pain that he had in his own life with these new characters? It's not Michael. Michael is an ogre, and you're not you. You're a brave knight that suddenly, having seen his world from that perspective, he has new insight on his own world and strength to face it. Do you see the wisdom in that? I think the key is in verse 10, and it's one of those lines that's worth underlining. Because John looks up and says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, for most of us, unfortunately, we've got a bunch of other cultural attachments that weird us out when we see things like that. John was in the Spirit. His eyes were rolling back in his head. He, he was in a dreamlike state. He was sort of wafting about, you know, in his spirit man or whatever it is. No, that's not what he's saying. What he means is, is for a moment, I was seeing the world from God's perspective. That's what it means to be in the Spirit. So for our purposes, every time we pick up the revelation of God's character in His Word, we see the world from His perspective. In other words, the best way to be as John was in the Spirit is to be sitting as you are now with your Bibles open in your laps or, or tuned in on your phones, whichever way it is that you access the Word. That's what it means to be in the Spirit. John is seeing the world from God's perspective. And do you see the power of that? Why is it that Aslan takes Lucy through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia? Why is it that Lewis Carroll brings Alice you know, to chase the rabbit down the hole into a whole new world? Why? It's because in those other worlds, those parallel places, they learn something about themselves that they would never have seen otherwise. They have new eyes, as it were. And so John is coming to give us another world. But it's different like the, in the way in which we mostly think about it. Most of us, when we think about those worlds, think of the worlds of fairy tales. Like, yes, Les, you're talking about the imaginary world that I had when I was a kid. No, not quite. It's actually quite different from that. Because this world, John is supposing, is not an imaginary world. It's actually the real world, because it is the world as God sees it. It is the world, as it were, from a transcendent perspective, the world that is as it really is. And it comes to us in these fantastic images, in that it is not imaginary, but it will be accessed through your imagination. I hope you see the wisdom of this. Eugene Peterson, uh, in one of his uh, books on Revelation, talks about how wonderful it is that at the end of having given his children uh, systematic theology, God finishes out his book with a picture book for his children to look at, to see the great truths that are all around them cast in these glorious images. Look, the book of Revelation, first of all, is an appeal to the imagination, hence the strangeness of its form. Secondly, though, brings to the second point, we see that there is a glorious destiny. It's accessed by the imagination that on the other side, that at the end of my journey, there is something waiting for me there that my present existence cannot even imagine. Look, life changed for the little boy, did it not? When the word Disney World came out. Everything was changed at that very moment. You know, I had a a student in my RUF back at the University of Memphis, a dear friend of mine still, who um, was actually really entertaining to watch Get Married and entertaining probably in the bad sense that I shouldn't have been laughing at what I was laughing at. Um, But my friend got married, and he began to face those things that married people face when they get married, and especially in the world of, of bills, you know, there's a sense in which for probably a lot of you in this room, maybe not all of you, things, material objects come to you by magic, right? Um, at Old Miss, you know, we call our Didi, Um D-I-D-D-Y, and we need more money in our account. Now, Old Miss people are kind of like, why is he picking on us? And I think you know why, because um, I know you, and that's all right. Um, but it was so funny to watch this guy look and be like, you know, like a telephone, like costs money, you have to pay for the use of that, and like you know, my car needs gas. And it was amazing to hear him just sort of uh, spell out the pressures of being married and of taking responsibility for one's life. And to be honest with you, he was a little depressed about it. You know, six months into marriage, it was like, "Eh, it's great. No, it's wonderful. It's a little hard. Until all of a sudden, he got some extraordinary news. He found out not six months into his marriage that his father-in-law had written he and his wife into his will. And that upon his father-in-law's passing, he was going to come into an extraordinary sum of money. And it was amazing for all of us to watch the transformation in this guy's life. Suddenly, he wasn't quite as burdened by the pressures of life. Suddenly he found new energy to sort of get through the things that are going. What's the point? What it means is is that news about one's future changes you in the present. Look at verses 17 and 18 there. This is huge. Because the vision of Jesus comes and immediately begins to talk about this. This is very important. Jesus begins to talk about the scope, the broadness of the scope of what he came to do. And for those of you who stand on the outside of Christianity this week, this may be foreign to you. But oftentimes, when you look at Christianity from the outside in, you think, what could possibly someone's work 2,000 years ago have to do with where I am now? Well, the answer to that question is that Christians have always taught that what happened in Jesus's life and death and resurrection 2,000 years ago has, as it were, a forever application. Jesus looks and says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, there is a broadness to my mission that begun to, began 2,000 years ago, is continued throughout my life in terms of my ongoing purification, a process in RUF we refer to as sanctification, but that eventually, one day, someday, at the end of all time, will be completed a thing that we call glorification. And it is in that moment of glorification that we see in many ways the broadness of the vision that God has in the Christian way of life. Look, the topic for this week is glorification. And hopefully you can look and understand how important it is for you now that you know that that's coming then. Jean Leroux, the speaker last week, refers to glorification as the forgottenification, And the reason why it's forgotten, and if I can speak as respectfully as I can, the reason why we have forgotten glorification is because you are an American Christian and you are associated, as it were, from a distance with American Christianity. And I would even press it further to say, for the vast majority of you, an upper crust, sort of white-collar, version of Christianity. And when glorification comes and speaks its truth to you about something that's coming in the future, it seems wildly irrelevant to us because we look around and say, oh, I don't know. It seems like things are pretty nice here. But here's the problem with that. American opulence, we believe in RUF, has drugged all of us. And like any drug addict, it's almost impossible to come in and explain to them that the euphoria that they feel now, the satisfaction that you feel with the world now, is not what's really true of you. Oh, the honesty comes out eventually. There are moments in times of great crisis, in times of great breakdown, where the truth will come out. But more likely than not, in the midst of our addiction to the materialism around us, We don't understand where we really are, which is actually in a slum. But What the Bible comes and does to us is to say that as a sober person, revelation is coming to bring you the ultimate sobriety by opening up the doors we'll talk about tomorrow night into a reality that both puts you in where you really are now and shows you what you really will have then if you know this man. A glorious future awaits and is described for us in the book of Revelation. So those are the first two points. It is access through the imagination. That is, there is a, an appeal to your imagination, first of all, that you have a glorious future, and thirdly, that you are not alone in your journey. And I'll finish with this point. Look, John's vision that he sees here, honestly, is probably the thematic center of the entire book of Revelation. And what we see there is a vision of Jesus of Nazareth in his glorified state, and John grasping at ways to describe it. Now look, this is as good a time as any to sort of throw in a couple of things that are going to help you understand how the book of Revelation talks, because we see a couple of things. First of all, Jesus' description comes to us in seven ways plus one. There are eight descriptions of him, seven plus one we find that there are seven lampstands. By the way, it's very nice when the book of Revelation comes right out and tells you what the symbols mean. Trust me, you'll long for these times as the days go ahead. That there's seven lampstands, but those are what? The seven churches. Now, why the numbers? Um, Numbers in the book of Revelation actually mean something important. Uh, To a Jewish ancient Near Eastern mind, we actually have ancient Near Eastern source material that show us Numbers meant something to a Jewish mind. And when John uses numbers, he's suggesting something more than just a convenient way of counting. Uh, We know for a fact that the number three, for instance, stood for the number of fullness or or, or perfection. The number four was the number of the earth. Uh, We'll hear news about the four corners of the earth and the angels gathering people from the four winds of the earth. Uh, The number six is the number of imperfection which you might wonder, poor six, why did he get that? Until you realize that number seven is the number of perfection. So six, being one less than seven, is a number of imperfection. Ten, we find out, is a number of fullness, very much like the number 12, which usually stands for the total number that there are supposed to be. Some of you have noticed the number 40 is kind of a big deal in the Bible. That's the number of generations to the Jewish mind. Uh, the number 10,000, even, is a number uh, that no one can count to this mind, kind of like when my kids use the word a jillion. So what does that mean, then, that Jesus comes among seven lampstands that we know are the seven churches, even names the seven churches? Look, I don't think you have to be sort of a sleuth to realize that the image of seven churches is intended to suggest the totality of all churches. And I would argue not just for John's time. In other words, anyone who names the name of Christ can look and say that there is a sense in which the fundamental image of the Christian understanding of the world is that Jesus is there. Now look, if we got weird before, trust me, it doesn't get much weirder than this. Bear with me for a second. There is nothing more fundamental To the Christian view of life, then this one conviction that the most tangible place, and I'm using my words very carefully at this moment, the most tangible place in which you will encounter someone for whom you probably very likely would say died, supposedly rose again, and then went to heaven, the most tangible place you'll see him is among Christian churches. Now, here's the deal. I have not said anything more countercultural and probably will not say anything more countercultural than that. The church as an institution is dead to you. You are done with her. And I'm sure somebody in here, this room could give a testimony. It's like, yeah, because you didn't go to my church growing up, Les. You'd have given up on it too. The church is where Jesus is going to show up. And yet right out of the gate in the book of Revelation, John is presented with sort of an image of the totality of churches and what's in the center of it, there is glory there. That if you want to find him, you'll find him in the midst of his churches. Jesus is saying that because I've set up camp in this place, you can finally know me for certain. Look, y'all, the theologians refer to this as union with Christ. This idea that there is an intimacy, a bond, sort of a a connection that's even more profound than your best friend, more profound, believe it or not, than your sorority sister, you know, that you'll be with in chapter eternal. (laughs) That was funny. I appreciate the response there. More profound even than the relationship you anticipate having with your future spouse so much so that there will come a day when the need for a spouse will seem irrelevant in the face of having him. So Jesus says. Look, y'all, I realize that's countercultural, but I want to try to appeal to you as I close with this one idea. I think you actually have gotten a little taste of this. By virtue of you simply being where you are right now, See if I can illustrate this. I had a young lady in um, that I was meeting with a number of years ago, five, six, some odd years ago, who had taken what I think is probably a, um, a fairly common, tragically so, path uh, in college. She had uh, arrived, sort of gotten plugged into RUF for maybe like a month or so, and eventually the sort of distractions of college began to call her away, and she found herself sort of in a party lifestyle, doing sort of the college thing, whatever, and she disappeared for about two years. But unusually so, somewhere around her junior year, she just kind of started showing up again. And I happened to remember her from her freshman year and was tried to greet her, and she was like, "Can we get together sometime?" I said, "Sure, let's go meet." And she was one of these sort of young ladies you can easily talk to, just a very uh, uh, affable personality that you can sort of open up to. And I said, well, "Look, you might have to pick your brain for a little bit because I'm just glad you're back around, and I, I'm just kind of curious." I said. What was it that brought you back? I mean, to kind of go out there and sort of do the thing, why would you show back up again? I'm really honestly just curious. <clears throat> the crazy thing was she didn't hesitate for a second. She said, Les, I can tell you it's two reasons. It's like she had outlined it, right? right, before she came. She said, here's the first reason. She goes, every night when Wednesday night came around, and I would think, or hear somebody that was headed off to RUF, I had a conscious voice in my head that would say something along the lines, I do not want to hear it. Because I know if I go to that place, something is going to confront me in the midst of those people that I'm not ready to talk about. I'm going to be faced with something that is supremely intimidating, that, there will be fo- that I will actually be asked to go and to delve into places that are of deep hurt for me that I don't even know how to talk about. And she said, honestly, it was tangible. It was honestly a voice in my head that would say, I don't want to hear it. She said, but secondly, the second reason that pushed me back was, is I got absolutely exhausted with the wild-eyed superficiality of my friendships that I had. She said, Less, I found myself sitting among my friends over lunch for like the 50th time. And I realized that all we had to talk about was how messed up we got last night and how messed up we were going to get tonight. Except she didn't say messed up. <laughs> in other words, she said, I finally realized that once I had been there, that there was no comfort there among those people, and I didn't know why. Look, y'all, I want to suggest to you that she came in contact With a hint, an echo, a a distant reverberation of Jesus Himself as He walks among His peoples. Did you see what happened to John? Listen, you you could take this on yourself. How will I know if I have met and encountered the real biblical Jesus? Well, it will likely happen to you. What happened in this passage? the very first thing that happens is that John is cosmically and psychologically and emotionally devastated by it. And so, so much so that he falls over as if dead, he says. In other words, in the face of that glory, this kind of pure intimidation so completely overwhelms me that there's no other reaction than to fall down. Look, that's appropriate. It's appropriate to be terrified of where the question of following Jesus might take you. That's appropriate. Because in the sense, we realize when we meet someone that glorious, he's going to ask for everything. He will not function as a spoke to the wheel of my life, but only as the center. And that means that there's places he's going to take me inside that I'm not ready to go to. But secondly, notice what John experienced. The moment that everything falls to pieces, is the very moment at which he feels the hand on his shoulder that looks and says, do not fear. Fear not. In other words, instantaneously, there's a voice that looks and says, I promise you, in me, you are going to find what you've been looking for. In me, you're going to find the resolution to all of the lost plot storylines of your life. For the artist, you'll find the painting you've been waiting to paint. For the musician, you'll find the song that you've been waiting to write. For the writer, you'll find the story that you've been trying to craft. You're going to find it in me. My friends, look, the mere gathering of yourselves. Let's do this, shall we? Let's bring ourselves into our own existential moments. (laughs) The mere gathering of this place with other people who are claiming to want to know Him, puts you, according to this passage, in the most life-transforming place you could possibly be. And now suddenly I realize why it was that 19 years ago, coming to a place like this was as transformational as it was. Because among God's people, we found the glorious Jesus walking And it is okay for you to be sitting in your seats right now saying, I don't get it. I don't see it. I've actually never experienced anything like that. That's okay. But could you at least remain curious to put 2,000 years of church history to the test and say, maybe, maybe people saw something here (laughs) in a place as motley as this that I might have missed. You can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you then come and reveal yourself to us in a place that we are dramatically not used to you seeing and actually probably have a little bit of a problem with the thought that you might show up here because your people seem to be the biggest problem. We agree with the bumper sticker, Lord Jesus, save us from your followers. And so it is an utter contradiction in our minds to think that somehow here in the relationships that we build, in the talk that we have in a walk down the beach, in the quietness of a small group as we gather, in the, in, in the mental processes we go through as your word is unfolded, that somehow we might meet a figure so cosmically glorious as the one we see in Revelation chapter 1. Lord Jesus, would you fall upon us then with your spirit and give us the eyes to see what John saw for the sake of your glory. And in the end, we will give you glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.